Welcome to Treasure Mountain, the podcast that inspires and guides people to find the treasure within human experience. I'm your host, Sol Hanna. On this episode of Spirit Stories, we have as our guest Ajahn Brahmali from Bodhnyana Monastery in Western Australia. Ajahn Brahmali was born in Norway in 1964 and first became interested in Buddhism when travelling to Japan in his 20s. After completing university degrees in finance and engineering, he decided that his true calling was a dedicated spiritual life of a bhikkhu, a Buddhist monk. Having heard the teachings of Ajahn Brahm, he travelled to Western Australia in 1994 and took higher ordination in 1996. Ajahn Brahmali is both a dedicated meditator and has a love for the teachings of the Buddha, and he has become widely respected for his work in both translating the Buddhist texts but also explaining the context of early Buddhism to modern audiences. He has co-authored the book The Authenticity of the Early Buddhist Texts with Bhikkhu Sajjado. Ajahn Brahmali's clear and thoughtful talks make the teachings of the Buddha easily accessible to all. And I personally recommend the Early Buddhism series of teachings that I'll be linking to in the description below. Bearing in mind that Ajahn Brahmali has a degree in finance, in this episode he'll be sharing his wisdom and experience on what the greatest investment of a lifetime really is. So join us as we seek the treasure within. Treasure Mountain, Bhante. How are you today? I am good, thank you, Sophie. And are you back in Western Australia now? Uh, yes, fortunately. I'm, I'm a bit jet, jet lagged, unfortunately. I'm not sure what's going to happen on this interview, but let's, let's see what, what hap- whatever happens, happens. So, so let's <laughs> good, see how it goes. It could but, be entertaining. And I, I believe that yeah. you've just been uh, traveling through Europe to offer teachings and to visit family. Which countries did you visit? I was the main uh, the main reason for going is you know going back to visit my my old mum basically that's kind of the one the main thing I want to do uh, and uh, but as I always do when I go over there I do a bit of teachings as well so I was in Belgium for about ten days we did a nine day retreat in Belgium which is uh, which is fantastic I mean one of the great things about Europe is that uh, it's such a small place you know the whole of Western Europe is basically the size of Western Australia. And so you get people from everywhere. The whole continent just comes together, merged together in a tiny place in the countryside in Belgium when you have a retreat together. People from Spain, people from, uh, lots of people from Eastern Europe, from Poland, people from the UK. There was an American man, there was a Finnish guy. There was, uh, what else was it? Dutch people, of course, Belgian people, a few people from Paris arriving, Germans. There was just, you know, kind of coming together on this retreat, uh, which was great. Uh, and uh, so we did that, and it's always inspiring. We, we had a nice place in the countryside with a large, beautiful meditation hall, and it's really inspiring to be able to teach people uh, in that kind of setting and having the, you know, the enthusiasm of uh, people from so many different places was really, really marvelous. Uh, and then I went off to uh, Germany for a day, visit a nun in Germany. I'm still kind of keen on uh, supporting the Bikunis around the place, and this 
quite a few bikunis now around various places in Europe and different monasteries, a few monasteries in Germany, there's a monastery in Belgium I just talked about and, and various places. And, uh, but they're all, what is kind of fascinating about the bikunis is that they're all pretty, they're all struggling basically and they all find it very hard to make ends meet and to get enough support, to have enough financial support to really uh, take off. And often they tend to be a bit isolated, you know, they're out there on their own and, and that sort of thing. So I, I feel it is they, they need the support. That's why I, you know, try to go a little bit out of my way to see if I can do something extra for them. And then I went off to Poland and I was in Poland for four days. And that was a, an extraordinary experience because I, I expected, always expected that Western Europe would be the one, the place that would be most ready for, um, you know, Buddhism. Uh, but actually it turns out it's, and this is my impression anyway, that Eastern Europe or Poland especially is actually far more ready for Buddhism than, than Western Europe. And that was very, very surprising. I thought kind of, you know, Western Europe, everyone is fed up with the kind of with religion. People are turning towards atheism and agnosticism. They don't really have anything to live for except for the material world and their BMWs and that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, we need something more. You can't just live for BMWs. I mean, you can, you can, you know, you can live, live a little bit for BMWs, not, not, but not that much. Um, but uh, I think, but actually, it seems for some reason it doesn't really have the same reach or whatever it is, Buddhism over there. I think, uh, uh, but whereas in Poland, it was very, uh, very palpable how much interest there was in spirituality here. And that was really fascinating. And I, I think that a couple of reasons, like one of the reasons is, as we talked about just before we started uh, here, is that we talked about the success in some of the people over there in marketing Ajahn Brahm's teaching, because they've been very, very successful. I think that's a very important factor, of course. Uh, but I also think that there is a kind of, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> natural spirituality in Poland, which uh, has to do with the um, uh, Catholic tradition over there, the Catholic monasteries. I mean, it's one of the most Catholic societies in the world. Uh, they still have a large number of Catholic monasteries. They have Catholic monastics. And it turns out that these monastics, they're still, what they call prayer, is often very similar to what we call meditation practice. You know, And uh, so it seems like they sometimes they achieve uh, states of mind or qualities of mind, which are not that different from the kind of samadhi experience that we're talking about in Buddhism. And uh, of course, they're talking about these things and they, you know, and then, of course, the society is actually interested in um, uh, in these things. And then, so they be and then they become a bit fed up with, Catholic with Catholicism because of all the scandals uh, in, in Catholicism. And they kind of look for that spirituality elsewhere and they then find it in Buddhism, hopefully. And then uh, um, there is, that is base, you know, the basis for popularity, I think, over there. Uh, so that was actually very interesting. Uh, and I, I hope we have more uh, dealings with Poland in the future. I'm not sure exactly how far we will take those dealings, but uh, I think there's a lot of potential over there for all, all sorts of things to happen. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we had um, uh, Peter Jagodzinski in our previous episode, and I was really amazed by the reach of uh, the work that's been done over there and how, how well received it has been. It's been quite astonishing, I have mm -hmm. to say. Uh, and very hardening, I think, uh, is that there's so many people, you think of the modern age as being so materialistic, but actually there are so many people who are genuinely interested in spiritual development. Mm. Yeah, I, I, you know, I've always been surprised that actually not more people are interested in Buddhist teachings. Uh, 
because I, you know, to me, the Buddhist teachings are really about the meaning of life. And if you find the meaning of life, then what, what on earth else are you going to do? You can't just chuck aside the meaning of life and take up something which is not the meaning of life. You know, once you mm. get it, that this is what it's all about, then you want to do it. And I, I suspect that a large part of the problem is just the packaging and the marketing and the way we um, approach these things, you know, getting the message out there. And there's so much, you know, we have seen the Dalai Lama uh, doing the marketing for Buddhism over a long period of time. And he has been very successful. I think in part is because he speaks a language that is very natural and very ordinary and very accessible to people. And, and uh, I think we need to do the same thing. And I think too often, you know, we start off with the with suffering, we start off with, the, you know, the cessation of everything, or we start off with the Four Noble Truths or whatever. And then people think, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want to hear about <laughs> suffering, you know, I want to hear about happiness. <laughs> I got a friend who's um, in uh, marketing, and he said, "You know, the the message of Christianity is the best marketing message you could ever possibly have. You know, all you got to do is you know swear your allegiance, believe in God, and then that's it. You go to eternity in heaven. What a great message! And then you got <laughs> Buddhism. Everything is suffering. <laughs> it's a terrible, it, terrible it marketing message, isn't it? it so it, well, we've got yeah. some work to do, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, we, we certainly do. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, I think you know that." Brings us to um, our core topic for today. Uh, you know, there is this kind of in our in Western societies we have, um, you know, this uh, on the surface at least this very materialistic age where people uh, there's a lot of conditioning factors, not just advertising but the culture. Everything is pushing people towards aspiring to gaining wealth. And one of the things I've noticed, because I spend far too much time on the internet, is there's a lot of <laughs> bloggers and YouTubers and podcasters who have got enormous amounts of advice about what the best investment is so that you can get you know, wealthy and you know, have everything that you want. Uh, but perhaps you've got a different perspective on what the greatest investment of a lifetime is, uh, although I do I do note that you've got a degree in finance as well. So... Um, <laughs> Although you've got no money now, so what what do you feel is the best investment of a lifetime? Yeah, that's a, that's a good. I think I, I don't think cryptocurrency is the best one. I think that's kind of you've got to be careful with that one. Huh? But I, I it, it's it's a very good question, and I I have often one of the ways that I've always marketed my talks uh, is to say that the Buddhist monks are the best investment advisor around. There's no one better than Buddhist monks or Buddhist monastics. Uh, because uh, our investment advice is actually far more interesting and far more uh, satisfying than any kind of investment advice you get anywhere else. Uh, and so I think this is, uh, so I, I always say to people, if you want to invest in, in anything, come to the Buddhist monk. Forget about Goldman Sachs and all this kind of investment banks. Uh, they're rubbish. They have no idea about anything. This is, this is where you want to come. Uh. And I, I, I remember one of the, you know, one of the interesting things about um, studying finance in London, which is where I was at the time, uh, well, this was actually one of the things that made me decide to become a Buddhist monk because I felt this was so unsatisfying. I felt, felt it was so driven by greed and by kind of superficial values and by status and by all of these kind of things. And I, I just felt the whole thing was just awful. And I just wanted to get away from it after studying it for, you know, a year and a half or two years or whatever it was. And uh, so the whole scene really put me off. So I'm actually here, I'm actually here because I studied finance. In, well, that's exaggerating, but in, but in part, yeah, that's kind of kind of the truth of it. So uh, so, so yes, and there was, so what is the problem, and what why doesn't ordinary 
can kind of investments, why don't they work? I mean, all you have to do now is you have to look up a newspaper. I think I saw an article just the other day about um, uh, people investing in cryptocurrency and they were crying their eyes out and they were kind of really, really upset because they'd lost some enormous amounts of money over the last few months. Apparently, the cryptocurrencies have been kind of plummeting and doing really, really terribly in, in recently. Uh, and uh, that is part one of the big problems with investment in the world is that you never, it's not really investment, it's more like gambling, right? That's, that's what, <laughs> you might as well go to the casino, put all your money on one on the roulette wheel, uh, you know, as placing it in cryptocurrency because it is so incredibly uncertain what you're doing here. And you might think that cryptocurrency is a special case, yeah, because that is particularly volatile and particularly uncertain. And of course, that's true. But any kind of investment in the world, whether it is in the shares or it is in in um, any kind of you know government papers or whether it's just putting your money in the bank, any kind of investment in the world has inherent risk to it. This has inherent certainty. Yeah? And uh, the greater the return, the greater the risk. This is kind of one of the laws of finance. Uh, if you want to have high return on what you're doing, you have to place it in very risky investments. Uh, and so, you know, you should always be prepared to lose your money <laughs> when you put your money into any of these kind of financial instruments anywhere around the world. Okay, so one of the major problems with investing in a material sense is the uncertainty of it all. I mean, and we've seen recently... Uh, Thousands of people in China who had their money in the bank and they thought that was safe have mm. lost it all as the banks are collapsing or there's some sort of fraud going right. on. Right. So they're they're protesting in the streets. So there's, the uncertainty is a major factor. But let's just put that aside for one moment. Some people do make a lot of money out of investing in the stock market or, or whatever else. Mm. Uh, but what is the flaw or limitation of trying to because you know, you've got to spend a lot of time doing the research and so forth. But what is the flaw and the limitation of acquiring such material wealth, apart from the uncertainty? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is, a, you know, there's a number of flaws. I mean, one of them is the, you know, the uncertainty is one of them. Uh, the other one is uh, that um, uh, in the end, it doesn't give that much satisfaction anyway. I mean, this is kind of one of the things. You never really get enough money. You never have enough of these kind of things. Uh, and you're always kind of moving towards something else. Uh, uh, that is a, an inherent flaw. You're not, you're not actually... The, the problem with the mind is that uh, what the mind is... What we're all looking for, we're looking for some kind of satisfaction in life, uh, some kind of happiness, some kind of end to suffering, uh, some sort of inner feeling that you know where we feel where we feel our life is meaningful and worthwhile and all of these kind of things and then we're trying to fill that psychological gap that psychological hole in our hearts in our minds or whatever it might conceive it to, to exist uh, with external things and it's obviously not going to work because there's an inner psychological problem that we have uh, and we're trying to somehow solve it by external things from the outsider this is always going to be problematic yeah? So the, um, the uh, filling that psychological hole inside of us with something external is a bit like a band-aid. It will give us some kind of degree of short-term satisfaction when you achieve it, uh, but it has just, it's not a long-term solution to the problem. It's like having a nice meal. Okay, you have a nice meal. It's a short-term satisfaction, but of course it doesn't take long before you want another meal or you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And this is how the whole sensory existence and, of course, money and finance is part of that sensory existence externally around us. So it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't really satisfy. If you want to find something that, that satisfies, uh, you have to look in an entirely different direction. You have to work directly 
with the problem. Yeah, the problem is a mental one, it's a psychological one. And you have to ask yourself, how can we fill this psychological gap within, this psychological hole, this sense of lack that we cannot always always carry with us, that we try to resolve with these external things? And the answer, that is where the spiritual path comes in. Because uh, there is something about spiritual happiness that is very different from uh, material satisfaction or material well-being. Because spiritual happiness is something that you achieve, for example, simply by being kind to somebody. Yeah, if you are kind to someone, if you say something nice to somebody, you say, you know, how you appreciate your friendship. By the way, Saul, I really appreciate your friendship. This is true. I'm not saying this doesn't mm. take here. It's true. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> yours as well. <laughs> so that's great. So when you say something, when you are kind to someone, there is a satisfaction that comes from kindness. That is a mm. very different. A nature than the satisfaction that comes from material things. And it is a satisfaction that doesn't have any craving coming with it, doesn't have any further desires coming with it. It feels like you, it's a happiness that is right here in the present moment. It is not some kind of, it, it, it is fulfilling in a very, very different way than the satisfaction of, you know, of acquiring wealth or whatever it might be. Okay. This so you're, you're, you're saying that. Uh, you know, when you try to acquire wealth, you'll never be satisfied in the long run because you're trying to fill uh, a psychological need with a material answer. And you've said that uh, developing things like kindness and friendship are inherently very satisfying and you can actually grow those feelings. But here's the question. We're talking about investment. How should one invest their time and energy to get to develop this spiritual path what, what do we need to do yeah so uh, basically what you need to do is you need to do all of those things that are you know in buddhism would be called them spiritual qualities yeah you need to develop things that lead to kind of filling that gap within and basically it is it is actually incredibly simple this is kind of the weird thing about the spiritual path it's such a simple path what is hard is to do it consistently because our you know our habits and our um, uh, proclivities and our kind of the way we normally do things tend to go in a different direction so you have to learn to change you have to learn to become a different person that is the hard part but essentially, it is about being kind. You know, it is about speaking kind words, about overcoming the habit of speaking bad things sometimes. It is about uh, acting with kindness towards other people, uh, somehow stopping us from acting. You know, sometimes everyone makes mistakes, and that's fine. But we have to also have this aspiration to overcome those negative qualities in, in ourselves, so to think with kindness. Yeah, This is a really, really important, this idea of giving people the benefit of the doubt, being able to see the good qualities in other people and, and forgive the bad qualities, uh, and then actually think in a, in a positive sense about the whole world around you. So this is a, and, and so you develop this kind of sense of inner kindness and compassion and care and uh, forgiveness uh, uh, within you, you know, ideally moment to moment all, all the time. Uh, and then you gradually, what you're doing is that you're building up a sense of, uh, it's almost as if this, the, the deeper senses of dissatisfaction, of suffering in life, uh, it's almost as if they just evaporate in a way. Uh, and gradually you feel a sense of contentment within that. Uh. And of course, that is, the, that is the beginning of that path. And the beginning of the path is often the most important one. Uh, and then you take that further. And the next step, of course, then is 
the direct development of the mind. Yeah, it's the meditation practice that we do. And that is why you take that even one step further and you kind of, through a meditation object or whatever it is, you then develop that sense of contentment, that sense of happiness to a degree that you probably have never experienced before in your entire life. And you you see things that you are just uh, astonishing. And that's when you really start to understand what real uh, contentment is. And you, and you start to understand actually what the very meaning of life itself is when you when you start to access some of these qualities. So the spiritual path is extraordinarily simple, really. And the hard part is the uh, how to commit properly and to persevere in the practice. That is really the hard part. That is where you need to put the focus. Do you have any advice uh, for people who maybe they've tried or they've they have sincerely engaged with the spiritual path? They've tried being kind. They've tried meditating, but they're they're finding it difficult. And you've said that uh, you know that sense of resilience is really important. Do you have any advice for people who are in that situation, and how can they keep on uh, going with with the path with the practice? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and. Uh, the, uh, the the thing is, I think, is that you, um, you know, sometimes people come to the spiritual path, maybe they have some kind of spiritual experience in their life, and then they, you know, they kind of, that drives them on to this idea of practicing or living a spiritual life, uh, or they may have some kind of underlying ideal. Uh, I think the most important thing is actually to understand the spiritual path properly. Uh, very often, we don't really understand what it is about. Uh, and... Uh, one of the mistakes that people often do is that they uh, use modern ways of kind of the you know the more like maybe maybe things that have been developed for specific psychological purposes. You have things like in the, the U.S. you have the mindfulness-based stress reduction MSBR, which is very famous in the U.S. developed by this man called John Kabat-Zinn. And what he has done, he has taken the idea of mindfulness out of Buddhism. He has repackaged the whole thing as a secular thing, which has nothing to do with Buddhism, so as to make it accessible and available and easily digestible by modern society. And fair enough, I can understand why he would want to do that, because it can be very hard for modern people to understand, you know, to, to, uh, to uh, accept a so-called religion as whether religion is actually as a whether Buddhism actually is a religion or not is a different story. But um, that's how they have repackaged it. But by doing that, by taking the mindfulness side out of Buddhism and leaving everything else aside, uh, actually you have a major problem because mindfulness on its own is not a separate thing that you can develop through your meditation or through your daily life. Uh, mindfulness is something that actually has to be done in a context. And the context, of course, is the entire Buddhist teachings, specifically the Noble Eightfold Path. That is really the context. So a lot of people, they... Uh, they don't really, they come up short precisely because they take the meditation out and they forget the larger context. So when I advise people, I would say if you're going to have to choose between uh, meditation or, say, just practicing kindness, you should always prioritize the kindness uh, because the kindness has a reward in its own right. And it will also support the meditation practice. But if all you do is meditation practice and you do that for 10 years, you come out the other side, you may be back to square one again because you haven't actually developed those inequalities. Those inequalities don't just develop naturally through meditation. You need this kind of this general change of view, the way you view the world, the way you treat other people. This actually is really the foundation itself. I heard a 
Uh, just, just a little bit more in solve before you, before you, before I allow you back in again. <laughs> so, so I had a, I just heard a, a story from this was from Sydney, I think, and there was a, a lady apparently who said that she, you know, she had been meditating really hard for ten years, and through that period she had never watched television because she felt television was just so distracting in her meditation practice, which is fair enough. And then she said that, but after 10 years, she decided, let's check out television again. Yeah, let's just see what it's like. Yeah, to try it out again. And then she said the moment she turned it on, or soon afterwards, she was hooked again on television. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so it was kind of obvious to me that she had been doing all the meditation practice. And of course, it has benefits. Of course, it makes you more satisfied during the day, has a lot of things. But unless you do something more, unless you develop other qualities on the path, unless you develop the virtue, unless you develop the right view and all of these kind of things, meditation itself will actually not necessarily be, be all that useful. And that, is, I think, is a very part, big part of the problem there. That's a really interesting uh, perspective, uh, Bante, especially uh, your focus on developing kindness and perhaps generosity. And I think uh, that's an interesting one because when we see people on these um, channels, there's a lot of people following these channels about finance, um, podcasters and so forth, the mentality is how can I get more? How can I get more of this money more and so I can buy more stuff? Whereas what you're saying is to experience a degree of inner um, happiness, perhaps a very high degree, we need to uh, turn that around and start saying, well, how can I be kind? How can I give? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, a, that's like the opposite mentality almost. Is that, is, am I on the right track with that? Yeah, I, well, I, actually, that's a very good point, right? Because a lot of the... Uh, a lot of this is driven by greed, yeah, and especially when people invest in very risky uh, financial instruments and things. Actually, it is often driven by greed. I want to get wealthy, and of course, you end up getting depressed instead because very often you lose all your, your all your money and whatever. So you actually need to do the opposite thing. That's precisely right. And of course, generosity is precisely the opposite of uh, you know the me me me. I want more. You know, I want <laughs> give make me wealthy or whatever. So that's very true, and I, I think that it's quite easy to see why that actually must be the case. You know, when you are, if you just reflecting on the idea of generosity, I think most people have had times in their life when they've had been very generous, they've felt this impulse to be generous towards other people. And uh, when you have that impulse, uh, it's a very, very beautiful quality. It's actually very, you can feel it is a spiritually uplifting quality to be generous towards something else. It is as if your mind expands, your mind kind of gets gets larger in a certain way, but within a positive way. It's like you are embracing the world around you, embracing other people, because giving is by definition embracing others because you want to include them, you want to help them out. Whereas the mentality of being selfish and thinking about yourself is really what you're doing is you're closing yourself off from the world around you. You're building a barrier around you and everyone else. This is mine. Keep your hands off. Yeah. Don't stay away. I'm not going to give you anything. I, I, this is, you know, it's, it's kind of that small mindedness where the mind becomes very centered on grasping and holding and attaching to these kind of things in the world. And actually, when you think about it, it's actually very unpleasant because it feels 
as if the whole world is a threat to you. The world is there to take your stuff and you have to protect it with your life and look after it and cling on to it. And uh, and so it's, uh, it's, this is why these things are so diametrically opposed. One is a narrow, small, contracted mind that is fearful of the world around it. The other one, the generosity, is a large mind that embraces and where fear largely is gone because, you know, you're no longer afraid of people, uh, or at least you're less afraid of people, you know, uh, taking advantage of you, whatever it might be. So I think that is a very a very critical point to actually realize that uh, that important distinction. I have to agree entirely. I know that particularly in the early years when I was practicing meditation, I think I took that greed mentality at certain times into my meditation. So I was I was meditating to get something, and I wanted results, you know, <laughs> and that often led to uh, a lot of uh, frustration. But I also know, like, I was very lucky because I was encouraged from a very early time to be a volunteer. And I jumped into it. And uh, I do remember that one of the best meditations I ever had, I was doing some volunteer work at uh, the Buddhist Society and uh, on a Saturday afternoon and then closed up, went into meditation, boom. It was just, it just had a really good meditation. And it, yeah. it really made me reflect upon that issue of grasping. You know, it can you can bring it into your meditation as well, not just out there in the world. Absolutely. Uh, as opposed to uh, that like you said, that expansive heart, that's really amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that is I think that is one of the biggest blockages often in meditation practice, this idea of trying to get something, yeah, trying to sort of achieve things. And it actually is, a, you, you have to, you know, anyone who has had a good meditation experience, they know that whenever it's good, it's precisely because you do the opposite, that meditation actually works. So suddenly you have a nice, a nice meditation and you think, what happened? Well, actually... I let go of the grasping. I stopped holding mm-hmm. on to these things. And that's kind of, I think, a very universal experience among people who've had some kind of nice meditation experience. And so the, so the, the big question, you know, in, in life then is, well, how can, we, how can we let go? How does this letting go happen? And often it is presented as kind of a, a bit of a mystery, yeah, the idea of letting go. It's as if no one really understands what, how it happens, how we, make, how we make it work. But actually... It isn't really a great mystery at all. Uh, the reason why letting go happens uh, is because you understand the downside of the things you're holding on to. Uh, if you understand the problem with the thing that you're holding on to, well, then actually it is far easier to let go. Uh, so in, in this case, you know, I'm talking about the idea of where to invest. Uh, and if you understand that it's far more important to invest in spiritual qualities and kindness, generosity, and these kind of things, uh, and you understand that the investments of the world actually are very shallow, they don't really lead to any long-term benefit or whatever, the more you understand that, the less you're going to grasp onto things in the world, the less you're going to grasp onto anything really, and then the letting go will happen more often in your meditation. It will not happen every time, but it will happen more often because your mind is inclining in the right way. And this kind of brings me back to what you were asking before. I didn't really have a chance to fully reply to that question. This was the idea of... uh, uh, how do we persevere, right, on the on the spiritual path? What are the things that enable us to kind of carry on without giving up? Uh, and a very important part of that is this idea of right view, of looking at the world in the right right, right way. And the Germans have a beautiful word for this. It's called Weltanschauung, which means like world view, how we you know how we regard the world in a sense. 
And uh, and the right view in Buddhism is very often presented at things like, you know, you have to believe in rebirth, you have to believe in karma and these kind of things. And that is true. I don't, I'm not going to underestimate that. It's very true. But it's also a bit theoretical and, uh, and intangible. It's not something that we can often relate to directly because it's maybe there is, maybe there's not. I mean, many people don't really know these things for sure. No? So we need to bring the idea of right view down to something much more tangible now. And uh, so the more tangible idea of right view is really to understand, like, where do you find happiness? Where do you find suffering here? And once, like in daily life, right? Like, like, like right now, you know, am I going to find happiness in, in uh, kind of being nasty and being, being unpleasant? Or am I going to find happiness in being kind and doing the right thing? And so it's a very simple idea of that, which is right view. And then a very important part of that uh, is precisely understanding the downside of the five sense world. And the five sense world includes the idea of investing in, you know, in the stock market or whatever, or, or the idea of money being important to you. Why is money important? Well, obviously, so we can enjoy the, the senses more. We can enjoy, the, enjoy life more. Yeah. So if you understand the downside of that, yeah, and we live in times that are really, a lot of people are scared. We live in times when there's kind of all kind of wars going on. We live in times when there's all this saber rattling happening between the, uh, you know, the big powers in the world. We live in times when there's dangerous, really dangerous climate change happening. We live in times when you, there's all kind of things, bad things seem to be happening at the same time. And when I look at the world, the way things look, this is going to probably be going going to carry on for quite a while. I mean, these things that we have set in motion are such deep things that, that it seems like, to me anyway, and I, I, hopefully I'm wrong, but it seems to me this is going to have, carry on for still a few decades into the future before we can maybe turn the ship around and kind of head, head in a better direction. It's kind of been building up for a long time. And so this is a very good time to reflect on the world because this is what the Buddha said. This is what he meant by impermanence, right? This is exactly what it means. The world is unreliable. It is impermanent. It's going to change. We have no idea where it's going to go next. It is not that it's all bad. It's just that we don't know what's going to happen. That's almost worse than everything being bad because it has this, this kind of fundamental insecurity built into the world and how the world actually works. So this is the uh, kind of the other side of the story. And I think uh, the idea of right view. And so I always recommend people to try to understand these Buddhist teachings properly. Why is the spiritual life so important? How is it distinguished from the world? Why is the world often problematic? What is the Buddha on the back with all of these kind of things? And as you investigate those things, and this is part of what we're doing now, you start to appreciate the spiritual path. Your mind starts to redirect itself towards new uh, new. Um, pursuits that are far more uh, amenable or far more productive of real happiness or real contentment and getting out of suffering and all of these kind of things. And so coming back to the message of the Buddha, whether you hear that in talks, whether you hear that in podcasts, <laughs> whether you hear that in, in, in wherever, even if you read the suttas, yeah, if, if you are into reading the suttas, and, and uh, sometimes it can be very beneficial to read the suttas for those who find that a bit inspiring, yeah. Uh, always come back to the Dhamma. Never think that you know what is going on. Now you can practice. No, you don't know what is going on. You know maybe a little bit about what's going on, but that understanding can go far, far deeper. And it's important to come back to these teachings again and again and again to allow your right view gradually 
to align with the view of the Buddha. That's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to see the world more with the eyes of the Buddha. That's kind of the point. And when you see the world more with the eyes of the Buddha, you're going to incline towards a spiritual practice and you're going to incline less towards a uh, investment in the world or or wherever it might be uh, in terms of you know worldly ideas and worldly kind of pursuits and pleasures. Absolutely, and I think um, you you've touched on the whole uncertainty that's in the world today. And I do note that a lot of that uncertainty, particularly regarding climate change, for instance, the root cause of that is is so much greed. Is that we've been willing to destroy our natural environment. Uh, and to, in this case, the atmosphere, uh, for the sake of our own greed. And now we're going to have to deal with some pretty nasty results. And, of course, here in Australia, we've been having catastrophic floods again and again all over the eastern states. Um, So you've pointed to the uncertainty and the the fact that you can never be satisfied with um, material gains. Uh, And that brings me to my final question, but it's a big one. What I mean, if somebody does practice kindness and generosity and and personal virtue, non-harming meditation, what can they expect as the results? What are the results of the spiritual practice? What does it feel like? <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> yeah, it, it it feels it, it feels marvelous. I mean, there's many aspects to this. I, one one thing is kind of the general sense that you are building up good qualities inside. We can see that there is a kind of gradual transformation going on there. And I and that in itself is rewarding, just feeling better about yourself. You know, you are better now than you were maybe two years ago or whatever. It's like a general feeling of, you know, just feeling feeling better about, uh, about yourself. And uh, that is, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, the qualities I'm talking about now is the qualities of just being more mindful, being more aware of what's happening around you which makes you feel more alive in a sense because you're more in the present instead of rushing through life. You actually, you know, enjoy whatever presents itself in the moment. Uh, but it also means that you are more resilient. One of the most important things we talk about these days, a lot of, you know, psychologists talk about is the idea of resilience. Uh, and of course, the reason why they talk about that is precisely because the world is so problematic. You need to be blooming resilient. Otherwise, you, <laughs> you have a problem. You have a problem. So, and that resilience comes because you have inner resources that you can rely on for, you know, for, for your life, for your existence. You are no longer so touched by external calamities and external problems because the inner resources are, are, are so strong. Yeah? So when people around you, and this is always going to happen, people around you get sick, they die eventually, etc. Uh, yes, there may still be grief, there may still be hard to take, but there will be still be something inside of you that can withstand or with, can deal with that problem in a better way than you could before because you have all of these uh, qualities. Uh, you have more independence from the world, I think, is one of those very, very important uh, ideas here. As long as we take refuge in the world, and by taking refuge in the world, I mean that we... Uh, all our happiness comes from the world. All our happiness comes from uh, relationships, from enjoying our wealth, from our career, our status, and all these kind of things. Uh, if everything comes from that, that is what I would call taking refuge in the world. Uh, then when the world goes wrong, well, you, you're going to suffer enormously. Uh, but if you start to change your refuge to those inner qualities instead, uh, well, then, of course, it is going to, uh, you're going to be more resilient uh, to, uh, to deal with the shocks of the external world. Uh, 
And so this is why someone who is an extremely good meditator uh, will not really be too bothered about what happens in the external world. Uh, you know, someone like uh, someone like Ajahn Brahm, for example, is kind of one of the great heroes of modern meditation practice, and he, he is a very good meditator. And uh, you can see that he is not really bothered so much about what happens in the external world. If people die, he knows that's the nature of that world. People die, okay, you can deal with it, even if there's people very close to you. If uh, people, monks in the monastery disrobe, if uh, you know, he gets thrown out of the, his kind of home monastery, if uh, the world goes to the dogs, then, uh, you know, poor dogs. Uh, but anyway, that's a different story. <laughs> um, you know, he, he deals with that because he has a very powerful refuge within that enables him to kind of to, to deal with these things. So this is, um, this is a very important uh, aspect of this. But another very important aspect of what you gain is that you gain meaning. Yeah, you gain real meaning in your life. And I, you know, when, when you feel that you are kind of moving towards something greater, something larger, something, you don't really know exactly where you're going because the end point of all of this is a bit sort of, a, it's really exciting, but it's a bit uncertain. But you can see that there is a, it's possible to change yourself. It's possible to uh, purify and to ennoble your personality in a way that is actually very profound and very beautiful. You get the sense of optimism. Yeah, I'm actually changing. I'm becoming a very different person from what I used to be. And there's a sense of some larger idea what life is about. It's not just about kind of getting as much as you can in this life and amassing wealth and amassing relationships and amassing all of these kind of things. No, it's about some kind of deeper thing going on. And that is extraordinarily meaningful. And I think to me, this is one of the reasons why I find monastic life so fulfilling because uh, even though one's meditation isn't always uh, you know, as great as it should be, there's this sense of uh, being part of something that is much, much larger than just the ordinary world around us, uh, something more profound, something more, um, something kind of one, wonderful in, in the kind of root sense of wonderful, there's a wonder about it. Yeah? This is this kind of uh, something uh, um, which is very attractive and very, uh, uh, very powerful. And I, and uh, to me, that may, in the end, may be one of the most powerful things that uh, messages that Buddhism has for the modern world is that you will never find that sense of meaning in the ordinary worldly things. Uh, you never find that sense of meaning in, uh, you know, investing on the stock market or whatever, but on the spiritual path you do. And I think this is one of the main reasons why it is such a uh, bulwark work against, um, uh, you, you know, against... Um, uh, depression and mental problems and all of these kind of things. Because when you have meaning, then anything is really possible. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you, you know, the, you know, yeah. That's uh, be- beautifully stated, Bhante. And um, I just also wanted to, you, you made me think of something that the Buddha said, one of his very short sayings. Um, correct me if I say it wrong, but uh, he said, uh, uh, it's, it is better to have loving kindness in one's mind for the length of a finger snap than to live without loving kindness for a hundred years, um, and it's a very powerful statement. And I think it really goes to that issue of what you're saying about not just both the fact that it's very meaningful, but also it's uplifting to have qualities like loving kindness. Uh, whereas if you're without that, I mean, it's it's a, it's like having an inner poverty, really. Mm. Yeah, uh, that, that, I think that's exactly right. And inner poverty is a, is a good way of. Uh... Of, um, of putting it, and that inner poverty is is far far worse than the external poverty, the poverty of the five senses, which is kind of really not all that uh, 
all that significant. You know, I, I mean, you, you travel around the world and you see people in poor countries and, you know, I mean, people are really, really poor. Like, you know, I've been to India, for example, in, the, in Bihar. Bihar is the poorest state of India. And you see people living in little shacks and, 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 kind of, and then sometimes these people have big smiles on their face, you know, and it's obvious that they don't feel depressed. They don't feel anything like that. And it just shows you that the mental aspect of the world is far, far more important than the physical or external aspect. And I, I always like to tell a story as one of my kind of favorite stories to kind of really make this point. And that was um, uh, a book I received from my girlfriend. Uh, no, I, I, okay, not, not, not the president. What, you've got a girlfriend? Is that... <laughs> <laughs> Just messing around. This is, this is a long time ago. This, <laughs> this was when I still, was still messing around in the world. This must be about 35 years ago or something. Yeah. And uh, she gave me a book, and, and this book was called uh, uh, Human Beings and Happiness or something like that. Uh, and this book was written by a fellow who had just come out of the Second World War. This was in Norway. His name was uh, uh, George Georg Brockman or something like that, George Brockman. And uh, he, this book was written in 1946, 1947, just after the Second World War in Norway. And uh, what he said in this book was really fascinating. It kind of opens your mind to a seeing the world and seeing everything in a completely different light. Because he said that many people experienced time during the Second World War when things were quite bad in places like, no, it wasn't as bad as in continental Europe, but it was still pretty bad. Yeah, you had people being sent off to concentration camps. You had a large population in prison. They were imprisoned by the Germans. You had people kind of going off into the forest to kind of have a rear guard guerrilla action against the Germans. You had bombs being dropped. Not that much, no, but still in certain places quite a lot. There was a rationing of food. There was rationing of clothes, yeah, all of these kind of things. It was a difficult time for almost everyone. And he said that that period during the Second World War that was so difficult for many people, it was more happy. It was better than the period before the Second World War, right? <laughs> and, and, and it's kind of astonishing. And I, when I, since reading that, whenever I kind of look at a war on TV, I never look at war in quite the same way anymore. I think about war in a completely different way than I used to. Used to. And he said the reason for that was because, well, this was his reckoning anyway, was because during the Second World War, even though the externals were so different, the internals were actually also very different because, because of that sense of, uh, uh, of challenge in the world outside, because of your entire livelihood, or your, your world was kind of collapsing around you, you banded together, you looked after each other, you had more compassion for each other, you helped each other out, you were more generous to the people around you who didn't have what you had. So essentially what he was saying, because the external world was so difficult uh, you had no choice but to develop the inner world instead you developed spiritual qualities that's essentially what he was saying yeah. so and uh, so uh, the, the kind of the you know the, the obvious uh, what is going on there very obviously is the fact that uh, you realize that for human happiness what is far more important than the external things, whether it's investing, whether it is the five senses or whatever, it is far more significant to build up the inequalities instead. The spiritual path is far more important for well-being than the world outside. That's essentially kind of what he uh, what he decided based on that experience. And so now, when I you know when I look at the the world, when I look at the wars in Ukraine and all that kind of things, yes, there is a lot of suffering, but sometimes we don't see the full picture. 
And there are people there on the ground who actually may very well be feeling more meaning, more purpose, more banding together. In fact, I have seen precisely that being reported. I, I read a newspaper article somewhere about uh, a woman who was interviewed and she said exactly the same thing as this Norwegian guy after the Second World War. I said, actually, I don't dare to say this, but I'm more happy now than I was before. <laughs> hmm. And uh, so, uh, so and this to me is kind of the, uh, the proof of the, the pudding, so to speak, yeah. Absolutely, and I've I've heard that as well. Like uh, some of the, uh, I spoke to um, Radan from the Czech Republic, and Peter from Poland, and they were saying now, uh, you know, people were opening up their houses to to Ukrainian refugees, and it gave them a, a real sense, I guess, of purpose, but also connection um, that they're all working together for for a common cause and doing good things. Well, look, I really uh, appreciate your time, Ajan. I think perhaps um, the summary. Uh, for those of the, you've lost all your cryptocurrency or, you know, the share market's down 20%, 30% this year, you can still be happy, wouldn't you say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's not, it's not yeah, you know, yeah, I, yeah I, I don't know if you want to go any longer, so, but yeah, of course you can go. I, I, you have to stop now? Is it a kind of a limit? No, no, there's, no there's no limit. There's no limit. So uh, it's not only that you can be happy, but uh, it's that, uh, when you lose all your money or lots of your money or part of your money or whatever on the stock market or in cryptocurrency, actually, it is a good opportunity to change. It's a good opportunity to look at the world in a new way and to understand things in a new way. Every time there is a problem, every time the world goes to the dog, it goes to the, to the, I can hear a dog in the background, maybe he's receiving the bit of the world. He's getting a message, yeah. <laughs> a message, yeah. <laughs> so, Every time there is a problem, actually, it is an incredible opportunity for spiritual growth. And this is this is really kind of the uh, the thing here. So whenever you lose your money, don't uh, don't despair. Instead of doing that, remember you know, the famous teaching about good, bad, who knows? Yeah, the good, bad, who knows teaching is really such an important thing. You don't know the outcome, the ultimate outcome uh, of many of the difficult things that happen in your life. Actually. Because, and because you don't know the ultimate outcome, any problem can actually be a spur for something greater, for something larger, because you get some insight, some understanding about the nature of the world. And that is what is really, uh, that is the potential uh, in these kind of things. Sometimes we become incredibly stupid when life goes too well, when everything is kind of going really nicely and there is no problems in the world. We become stupid because we think this is the way the world is supposed to be here. But of course, that's completely wrong. The world is not supposed to be like that. The world is supposed to be uncertain. And because it is uncertain, there's always the potential, always that uh, just around the corner, it might be the um, you know next problem already building up. And then uh, suddenly it arrives and bang, everything collapses. You lose all your money, you lose uh, whatever. And that's just the nature of things. So this is an opportunity. And once you understand the suffering as an opportunity, the suffering itself actually reduces in magnitude quite a lot because of that. Oh, that is so well said, and I've noticed that as well over the past 28 years I've been involved in Buddhism, is that often there's a crisis that brings people to the practice. They've got cancer, they've lost their marriage, it's broken down in a, in a bad way. It's It feels like they've lost everything, and that is the thing that can, like you say, it's an opportunity that let's get started, let's find a new way find happiness mm. so yeah. yes and I, I, one more one more thing so i don't know if you want to 
uh, again, I, just just tell me when you want to stop because I, you know, I can probably can probably go on forever. There's, there's so much to be said. I said about all of this, you know, the, and this, this, these are such important topics. But I, I just wanted to come back again to where we started off about the idea of uh, investing. That's kind of what we what we're talking about, uh, and the kind of the downsides of uh, of investment and all of these kind of things. And uh, you know, when you one thing is the uh, the fact that investment doesn't give you worldly investments, placing your money. In, in whatever it doesn't really give you all that such great satisfaction that that's the first thing the second thing is the uncertainty with these things you might very well lose your money right and that sort of takes away a lot of the interest when you really understand the uncertainty in things uh, actually that is very um, very problematic for for that kind of investment and you can see when people grieve and they get really upset about losing the money in, in cryptocurrency Basically, they haven't really understood the uncertainty. If they had understood the uncertainty in the first place, they wouldn't grieve because they would realize, well, this was actually part of the problem to begin with. And that shows you the potential for just reflecting on the idea of impermanence, reflecting on the idea of uncertainty. If you really get it, then you will never grieve when things go wrong because you understand already beforehand that there is a problem there. The fact that you grieve means you haven't really got it fully, maybe partially, but not fully. So that idea of reflecting on the downside of the world, on, on the impermanence itself, uh, actually allows you gradually release from that world and gradually understanding uh, the problem with that. Uh, and uh, the, the, the really, you know, the, the really issue that the way the Buddha puts this, and I think there's such a beautiful way of talking about this whole thing. Uh, and he says that actually uh, we don't really own things in the first place. Uh, the problem is this idea of ownership. This is mine. This belongs to me. This is my money. This is my house. This is my car. This is my relationship. This is my position in society, whatever it is. But actually, we don't own these things in the first place. The problem is the sense of ownership. Because the moment you think you own it, you think you have a right to control it. You think it should always be there. It should be something that you can actually uh basically control in your life. But of course you can't. So the Buddha says the right way of thinking about everything in our life is not as things we own, but as things we borrow. Yeah, everything in our life are borrowed things, including our house, including all our possessions, including our relationships, including our status in society. Everything is just borrowed. And when you think of everything as borrowed, it changes your attitude to things around you dramatically. And one way of understanding that is to understand, well, what is the difference between a car that you so-called own, yeah, what your car, and you compare that your car to a car you rent from a rental company, Hertz or whatever it is. What is the difference between your relationship between those two things? And the difference actually is quite significant. Yeah, If someone, if you get a scratch in your car, you get really upset if the, if you get a scratch in the rental car, you just whatever, you just shrug your shoulders. You're not really too concerned about it. <laughs> true, true. You might, be, I mean, if you're a decent person, you're not going to scratch it deliberately, of course, but, you know, it still happens. And so you, your attitude towards the whole world starts to change because you start to look at things in a different way. It is all borrowed. And then the Buddha says, well, what is the one thing that is not borrowed? Is there anything that is not borrowed? And the answer is yes. The Buddha says there's one thing that isn't borrowed, and that is your kama. Your kama is not borrowed. He, he specifically says that kama is yours. This is what you own. This is kind of one of the standard 
little blocks of passages that you find in the suttas everywhere. You are the owner of your own kama. And, uh, and strictly speaking, even that isn't quite true because kama itself, of course, over the very long term, it kind of uh, evolves and it changes or whatever. But it's far more true to say that kama is yours compared to the things around your world. So what is kama? Well, kamma is basically your inner qualities. Yeah? This is what we've been talking about all the way through this podcast. That if you develop good qualities of mind, essentially you're making good kamma. And you know you're making good kamma because you're feeling more happy. That's kind of the that's the result. Yeah. You have done all the right things, you're feeling more calm, feeling more happy. It does not mean that you have to make massive changes in your life. Sometimes people think that if the, the world is going going wrong, maybe one should become a monastic. And of of course, it's fine to become a monastic, but that's not really the main issue. The main issue is to be able to live life with spiritual qualities. And any life can be lived with spiritual qualities. Maybe not any life, maybe not if you are a mafia member, but, you know, most lives can be lived with spiritual qualities, right? And because it is about how you, you treat people in daily life. It's about how you... Uh, whether you are, you know, whether you bring the spiritual qualities into your family life, into your work life, into your hobbies, into all of these things, that is really what it is about. So uh, in the, you know, in the long run, you want to really focus on those things that you actually can take with you, those things that actually are really yours, not on the borrowed goods that you have to cast away anyway. And that is kind of the uh, the difference here. And then when you come to your grave, yeah, you're finally going to die, uh, you're going to feel satisfied. You feel like you have lived your life in a good way. You feel like I have done something positive in this world. Uh, and you can die peacefully. You can die with a good heart. You can die in a way that uh, uh, you don't feel a sense of despair because everything has to be left behind. Whereas the person who only lives for material things, only lives for status, only lives for relationships, uh, yeah, and doesn't really consider the deeper side of things, uh, when they come to the deathbed, it's going to be agonizing. It's going to be really, really hard because everything they have done in their life, everything they have built up, everything they have focused on, everything they have lived for has to be given up. Imagine the pain. Yeah? Imagine, of course, because that is what your life, your whole life is about. You come to your deathbed, you feel that there is no meaning in all of this. You feel a sense of despair. You feel that, uh, have I wasted my life? I had the opportunity to do something more, something better. Have I wasted my entire life, maybe? That is the kind of thing that you get to that, you know, when you come to your deathbed, especially if you have pursued all of those um, worldly things, maybe by being a bit uh, immoral sometimes, because if the world of things is all there is, well, maybe it is okay to take a few shortcuts. Maybe it's okay to, uh, you know, do lie a little bit here or cheat a little bit there, because after all, if the world is really what matters, then a little bit of cheating is probably all right. Uh, yeah. And then you come to your death, but not only have you, can't you take anything with you, assuming that there is a future after that, uh, but you have actually destroyed some of your inequalities at the same time. Uh, what you are, if there is an afterlife, if there is a rebirth, and of course the Buddha says there is, actually you're worse, uh, you, you, you're in a worse position than what you were when you started out in this life. And you can, and, and so you, are, you have really let yourself down big time. So this is kind of the final you know, position of Buddhism and one of the positions, one of the, the final kind of argument of why 
uh, external wealth or external investment in the world doesn't really work because you can't take it with you into a future life. This is where the idea of rebirth comes in. And this is one of the reasons why having an idea of a future life actually has a massive impact on your spiritual practice because it teaches you something about what life is like in the long term yeah, and what kind of the bigger picture of the world is like. If you come to your deathbed and if you want to carry on into the future with having built up some wealth, having invested in qualities you can take with you beyond even the present life. And this is why I say monastics, we are the ones that are really into long-term investment. Yeah, and Everyone else has no idea about long-term investment at all. They're completely clueless. So long-term investment actually means taking into account the idea of future lives as well. That is where it comes. So if you are concerned about long-term investment in this life, which everyone is, surely you should also be concerned about long-term investment also beyond this particular life. And that is kind of the final answer. And this is where all the modern investment advisors fail miserably. Why do they fail? Basically, because they have wrong view. Mm. I think that uh, closes the argument, uh, Arjun. That's uh, very persuasive. <laughs> I think everyone listening and now makes it very, very clear that you need to invest your energy and time into developing these spiritual qualities, and that is the thing that is most worthwhile investing in. Thank you very much, Arjun, for uh, taking the time today to, uh, to give your advice and perspective on the greatest investment of a lifetime. Okay, thanks so much, Solman, and take care. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us for this enlightening episode of Treasure Mount, in which Ajahn Brahmali, a monk at the forefront of connecting modern audiences to the meaning and practice of early Buddhism, has pointed us to what really is valuable in life, investing our time and energy in developing our spiritual qualities. And for the record, I named this podcast, the Treasure Mountain Podcast, as a metaphor with the real treasure being the development of spiritual qualities of forgiveness, kindness, generosity, tranquility and wisdom. The treasure we seek is right here inside of us. We don't need to go looking here and there and generally out there, but rather by turning our attention to developing these inner qualities that lead to a lasting sense of peace and happiness within ourselves. You can find out more about the Treasure Mountain podcast by going to www.treasuremountain.info where you'll find all the previous episodes and information about all our guests. If you enjoy this podcast, you can subscribe to Treasure Mountain by using your favorite podcast app in order to get notified about future episodes and to listen to episodes on the go. And don't forget to tell your friends about Treasure Mountain too. I'll have more inspiring guests and topics in the coming weeks. Until then, I wish you all the best on your spiritual voyage.